Hello, everybody. Shekh uh, Patchwai. We're going to give you a second to join in for our live stream for War Cry podcast. Okay. So uh, our intent today is to learn how our guest helps families tell their stories about missing and murdered Indigenous women and people. Uh, this also includes, you know, being an advocate and telling advocate stories. Uh, our guest today hosts podcasts on the topic and is internationally known journalist. This topic can be sensitive and triggering and we urge you to take self-care uh, when needed. If you need to step away during the podcast, we completely understand uh, that part of it. Again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are in season two. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We are live streaming during the noon hour Pacific time. We will be checking, uh, by we, I mean my producer, we'll be checking for comments or insights. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowett. Our guest today is Connie Walker, host of Stolen, The Search for Germain by Gimlet Media, which you can find on Spotify. Um, before we have our guests introduce themselves, we wanna uh, have a few announcements. Are we gonna go with Parker Doe first? Okay, yes. the first announcement is about Parker Doe, which uh, as you recall from our episode uh, with Tammy Ayer, uh, this was a woman that was found in the un on the Yakima Reservation on February 16th, 1988. It has been 33 years and this uh, woman is still unidentified. This uh, week, the coroner's office released a digital image uh, and you know, to try to help get information and find her family and answer the questions uh, surrounding her homicide. So uh, Robin has up on the screen right now the, uh, the clay skeleton that was done uh, at a university and then they did a digital reconstruction. So again, just wanting to share again, uh, we are going through wildfires here in the Pacific Northwest, especially here on the Yakima Reservation. And this is just an example. This is from this morning. Um, this is the, the gap, as we call, we've talked about it a few times about on this side, left side uh, being the reservation and then this right side kind of being the divide here. But there are, these are two hills. It just shows, you know, prayers to people who, um, you know, are suffering uh respiratory issues or anything like that it is a hazardous time for air quality right now yeah it also is increasing a lot of testing and, and uh anticipatory stress regarding you know symptoms being matched yes and uh you know just to remind our viewers our style of this podcast is you know we all love to drink our coffee and we all love to go to different places along the reservation to eat it and so we really like to have this i'm drinking coffee style of podcast you know there's robin with her drink connie with hers and and really like you're just sitting at the table next to us listening 
Um, so it's, you know, it can be a lot more informal than um, some of the others. And with that, I want to, uh, I know I said you're internationally known award-winning journalist, but I want to really hear Connie from you and how uh, you would like to introduce yourselves to our viewers. Sure, I, I just wanted to say that I'm so happy to be here today with you all and, and joining you. I'm, I'm currently in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, um, but I'm originally from Saskatchewan, uh, from, from uh, the Okanese First Nation, which is where I grew up in Fell Hills, which is a community there. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm thrilled to, to join you and I just admire the work that you're doing um, you know, telling your own stories and, and lifting up our voices. So thank you all for having me. And, and I hope you guys are doing okay out there that like, those wildfires are no joke. How are you guys doing? It's okay. not fun. <laughs> Especially if you have asthma and those kinds of things. And I'm at the foothills of the mountains here. And it just just rolls off from the mountains. Yeah, so that's the reason that I asked earlier how everyone was doing. Yeah. Terrible. I also um, want to, uh, from our community consultant, also a co-host, uh, Patsy, she has us go in alphabetical order. So for our first question, we're going to turn to Robin, our youngest of our group. <laughs> alphabetical order and or oldest, or youngest to oldest. We always use my alphabetical. Oh, sorry, yeah. I don't know why I said alphabetical. The smoke is affecting me, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm alphabetical and youngest to oldest. <laughs> um, let's see. So as all of us have our different journeys into how we got into the work that we're doing now, how did you get into your profession that you're doing now? How did you get into doing like podcasting and, and investigative journalism? Um, I, I've, I've been a reporter for about 20 years. Um, and uh, I think that my, my interest in journalism first started actually when I was in high school. Um, I grew up like on a very small reserve um, outside of a very small town in rural Saskatchewan. And if you guys aren't familiar with Saskatchewan, I'd say it's probably really similar to Montana or South Dakota, very close in proximity as well. So, you know, I think that when, when I was, um, you know, growing up in Saskatchewan, um, the first time I thought about becoming a journalist or the first time I actually wrote something for our school paper, um, was, was when a woman named uh, Pamela George um, was killed uh, in Regina, Saskatchewan. And I didn't know Pamela George, but she was from a reserve not far from mine. And um, I wasn't even, I think, a, a teenager who paid much attention to the news really. But I, I think everybody in Saskatchewan, especially every First Nations or, or Indigenous woman knew about Pamela George. Um, and, it, it, you know, she she was a mother, um, a, a young mom, and she was a sister and an auntie uh, and a daughter, and, and she was killed. And I remember so much of the media attention was focused on the two men who were charged in Pamela's uh, death. And, and I remember feeling like we knew more about them than we knew about Pamela, you know, that that one of them was a basketball player, the other one played hockey, like they were from this, you know, middle-class families in Regina. And, um, and I remember the way that, that the media talked about, about Pamela. 
and it and it really you know made me really upset as a as a young indigenous woman and i thought about you know the people who were writing the stories and i wondered or i imagined that there weren't any indigenous people who were working in in those spaces and and so i wrote something for like my high school uh paper or after those two men um ended up being acquitted of, of pamela's murder and sentenced to manslaughter and her death um and and it you know i think that i probably didn't have the words for it at the time but i think that the way that that she was talked about you know felt you know so upsetting uh, in terms of what it said about how the justice system treated indigenous women and girls and and our and violence committed against us and also you know the media's portrayal of pamela and and what happened and and also what that said about how we were valued or not valued in society um but it was a really really long time like you know i was i i, I think i started my as an intern at cbc in 2000 and and for most of you know like the, most of my career there at cbc um, there was very little interest in hearing stories about us and from our communities, unless there was something, you know, some terrible crisis or conflict had happened. Um, and so, so it really has only been, I, I would say, in the last, you know, eight to 10 years that that, that has started to change and that that shift has, has been, been happening. And, you know, before that, it was, you know, it was really a difficult thing to to be one of a few journalists, you know, at, at the CBC, like, you know, we're still very underrepresented in media, and, and that's changing. And there's a lot of amazing young Indigenous journalists who are coming up and um, leading the charge. But, but uh, it's, you know, it's really, it's really been, I think, slow progress, we, we need to move faster. So that was a really long answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have a response, Robin? Good. No, it was really good. It's interesting because, um, I mean, that's kind of how we got started here as well. It's just seeing like the like different cases going on, and we're just kind of just approaching things of the way that we can. And so, thank you. Yeah, and I um, I appreciate you sharing that aspect of you know your youth advocacy as well as you know. Um, the process of not understanding some things. I uh, actually wanted to share an article about um, from August 8, 2019, written by Lillian Upman and Charkusta News. And the reason why I want to share this is, you know, living in rural areas, we always wonder, like, why are they talking about that? Why are they bringing this up? You know, I, I think, you know, you coming from a very rural area, us living in a rural area, people know each other. We wonder why we're talking about certain things. And it was actually a young gentleman in this young team that I first heard about uh, Jermaine's case. Mm -hmm. And I just want to take a second to share how this is connected to the Yakima people. You know, our podcast is focused on Northwest missing and murdered. But here we have a young gentleman that is of Yakima descent that was going to play basketball and he wanted to bring her name forward and have a handprint on his mouth to help bring advocacy. And he asked his team if they'd be willing to do the same. Um, and Valenda, who was aunt of the um, Germaine Charlo, painted the boys' faces and explained the symbolism of the handprint across the mouth meant no more silence about our women missing and speaking out on awareness. 
Um, and when I think about, you know, youth advocacy, I also think about elder advocacy. I think about, you know, the latest episode that you had, which was, you know, also on August 8th, but years later, you know, uh, I'm somebody that finds symbolism in dates and timing and meaning. And it just, it just seems like let's get some answers. And I just wonder if you can explore and talk about, you know, that that uh, latest development in Jermaine's case, as well as, you know, how much her grandmother is an advocate. Yeah, I, I the, um, the, there's so much to unpack in there. I mean, I think that, um, you know, so for the last few years, I've been focused pretty exclusively on, on reporting on violence against Indigenous women and girls. And, and because um, the podcast that I do focuses typically on like one case, um, one individual, one woman or one girl per season um, who is, is missing or murdered, uh, you know, it really becomes her family who, you know, who are the, the people who are telling or helping to tell her story and the people who are, who are being the advocates and who are taking that on. And, and there are, you know, it's, it's so heartbreaking to think of you know how many families have been in in this position where they're not only dealing with the grief and loss of of losing a loved one or, or not knowing where they are or having them uh, you know go missing but then they have to then because you know i've heard from so many families that you know they have trouble you know, getting police interested in their loved one's disappearance um, or or ask, you know, that they they these these stories have been largely ignored in media really until very recently. And so feeling like they, they don't have anywhere to turn and feeling like they have to be their loved one's biggest advocate. And I think that was absolutely true for Jermaine's family and especially her Yaya, um, Vicky Morgeau. You know, I so so in in the podcast, the search for Jermaine. You know, we we try to um, really dive deeply into Jermaine's unsolved disappearance. So she um, was last seen in 2018. Um, she was in downtown Missoula, which I'm sure you guys are familiar, but is a really you know vibrant uh small like but vibrant college town and she was was um out and she was last seen um at a uh, leaving a bar in downtown missoula on a friday night um in early summer in june june 15th that uh but actually it was after midnight so it was early morning june 16th and she was captured on surveillance footage leaving this this bar um, and she turned a corner and that was the last confirmed sighting of, of Jermaine Charlotte. and her grandmother, Vicky, you know, I, I was able to meet her and, and her aunts, um, Valinda and Danny, um, who have become, you know, Jermaine's biggest advocates and, and who have been so dedicated um, to, to raising awareness about Jermaine's case, but also, I, you know, I think what is so incredible about about them and the work they're doing is that they're also advocating for this issue for other families and trying to make sure that what they have experienced and what has happened to them is is not the same thing that other families have to go through and um and her grandmother vicky um 
Jermaine's grandma, Vicky, was, you know, was immediately concerned. Like the day after, you know, she didn't hear from Jermaine, she was like that. This is this is unlike her. This is something she always texts me back or calls me back. She's very active on social media. And as soon as she wasn't, Vicky was concerned right away and started mobilizing her kids. And she wasn't home at the time. She she had also she was out of the state out of state. So um you know it was also hard for her to be doing that work from so far away but she she headed home and her aunt belinda tried to get her reported missing um i'm, I'm sure you guys i think in particular know this maybe better than anyone else but there are so many jurisdictional issues that impact um how these how law enforcement um like deals with these kinds of cases but also uh, which law enforcement do you call? You know, sometimes it's really different depending on where you are on on the reservation. And Jermaine's uh, reservation, um, you know, there I think there are five different counties that have jurisdiction on there. But she went missing in Missoula, so her family approached the tribal police. They approached uh, um, also the Missoula City Police Department, um, and. And so our podcast, you know, is is really kind of a, a deep dive into the mystery of Jermaine's disappearance and really helping to try to shed light on the police investigation and what happened in the early days and weeks and months of her disappearance. But we also take, I think, an equally in-depth look at Jermaine's life leading up to her disappearance. You know, I think that when, for me as, as an Indigenous woman, um, you know, I, I think I, I'm so encouraged now that there is more coverage and more awareness about the violence that we face. Um, but I think that along with that, we really need to to take a, a, a deeper look that it can't only be focused on, um, you know, the violence that results in someone's death or disappearance, that it really we really need to look at the systemic issues at the heart of it. And you had asked earlier, Robin, about like how I got into podcasting. It was a real like I never expected to end up where I am. Um, but for a long time, you know, there was no interest in stories from our communities. And then that started to change and I started doing more reporting. Um, and and I was mostly a TV reporter for a really long time. And I was, you know, when I was reporting on uh, cases about missing or murdered Indigenous women and girls, I remember almost from the beginning feeling a kind of frustration that so much of of their story, uh, you know, was really difficult to include in in two minute news stories or even 15 minute news stories that, you know, I remember reporting on on um, an unsolved murder in, in northern Manitoba of a 15 year old girl named Leah Anderson. Um, and we spent like, you know, five days in her community and, and got to do interviews with her family and friends and really tried to understand the circumstances around her disappearance. But just being in the community and meeting her family, you know, I realized there were so many pieces of context that were so relevant to her story and I think relevant to even her unsolved murder that we didn't get to include in a 15 minute documentary for TV you know we didn't get to talk about the fact that she was involved in the child welfare system and that that was that was you know such a, a big issue in that community and the fact that um you know her father had 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 died a violent death and this kind of trauma 
that's associated with that and how it is impacting our families and communities. We didn't get to talk about the legacies of residential schools and boarding schools in, in that family. And I know that those are absolutely things that impact violence against Indigenous women and girls. We didn't get to talk about the fact that they didn't have equal access to like clean drinking water or sewer, like proper sewage services, that there was a housing crisis in the community. There's all this like important context that I think is really important to understanding these issues that we weren't able to include. And so when when I first had the opportunity to work on a podcast where we, we you know we we dive really deeply into one story in one case over you know eight nine ten episodes um, and and you know in totality like hours uh, you know hours of of audio focused on one story I, you know I feel I felt like this was the way that we could provide all of that context this is this is the format that we can use to help people really understand the truth and because there's so much that we have to educate and inform people about our lives because you know there's so much that people don't understand about you know contemporary indigenous life a lot of people you know feel like um we live in the past or our stories, you know, are just starting to kind of get the representation that they deserve. But that means that we have a lot of catching up to do and there's a lot of education. And, and so I found podcasting to be a really important part of that. And so in getting to look at Jermaine's, um, you know, unsolved case, it was also really important for us to feel like we, we're allowing people to to get to know her family in the way that I was so lucky um, to get to know them in the time that I spent with them. And, and, you know, this is a family that like, like I said, has been, you know, just had to become these incredible advocates for, for their granddaughter and, and niece and, and sister, um, but who also are, you know, are, are desperate to find her and to bring Jermaine home. And, and uh, so the update episode that we did a couple of weeks ago um, was a kind of a continuation of, of the investigation that we did. So, you know, there was an arrest made. Um, and, and so our update episode talked about it, uh, the arrest. It wasn't in, in relation to Jermaine's disappearance. It was um, Jermaine's uh, ex-boyfriend who was the, was, has never been charged or even named a suspect in her disappearance. Um, I want to make sure I'm clear about that. Um, and, but but we know that he was a, a large kind of focus of the police investigation following her disappearance. Um, and and we talk about a lot about, you know, a lot about that in our podcast. And he had he was arrested by um, uh, by the detective who's actually been in the lead investigator in Jermaine's disappearance, but he was arrested on a firearms charge. And so our episode is trying to kind of unpack all of that and 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 show how it's related, um, you know, to Jermaine, but not necessarily to her disappearance. Um, and and you guys are probably understand this better than I would, but like um, in Montana or sorry, in the United States, um, the, the, he was charged with this firearms offense because they said, uh, according to um, um, the prosecutor that he he was not supposed to have firearms because he had a prior conviction of domestic violence and in our reporting we 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 talked a lot about those that prior conviction of, of domestic violence because we were able to get the documents um, that show that show he had been arrested and, and pled guilty to assaulting Jermaine when she was still a minor when she was 17 
Um, and and so we, we did a lot of that reporting and we talk again to Jermaine's um, family and her aunt, Danny, and her grandmother, Vicky, and, and give an update on 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 how they're doing. And, um, and, and that's what our update episode is, is about. But yeah, her family have just been incredible advocates for her. Yeah, thank you so much for kind of explaining the development in the case as well as, you know, the family and community positioning of being an advocate. I think the, and, and again, like different contexts that Connie brings in into your reporting are for our audience. If you're not aware and if you haven't listened to any of her podcasts, you can really see and hear, actually for podcasts, you'd hear it. <laughs> you can really hear um, those different levels and layers being brought out. And I think what has stayed with me since I listened to the latest episode of Stolen is you we're talking about the multi-jurisdictional issues that the family is facing, the unanswered questions, them lined up outside the courtroom, the grandmother in cancer treatment with a cane, you know, and you had said it's almost like a very slow chess game in which there's a piece moved after years. Um, mm. And you said, but to the family, it's not a game. And that just like that just encapsulated a lot for a lot of different cases. And I just appreciate you um, continuing to bring that context in for families and our missing and murdered Indigenous relatives. Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn over to Lucy for her uh, question. So thank you, Connie, for being on the show, for one. Um, this is really exciting. And um, and also explaining the process of, of why you wanted to do individual cases for your podcast um, and what the context is leading up to the situation and then the aftermath of it and what continues to happen after. Um, given that I imagine you would have to spend a lot of time to build relationships with those families, um, so with that being said, how did you go about to building those relationships? And then do you continue to keep in touch with those families or do they continue to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I, th I think that, that, um, when we're talking about telling stories about our, our communities and from our communities and, and talking with people, um, you know, and asking them to share their stories. I, I am, I always th feel like we really also need to be um, really aware of the history of how our stories have been told. And, and largely it's been, you know, non-Indigenous people for a long time coming in to our communities and, and telling our stories and, and leaving. And, and because, you know, because they're not from our communities and they don't have this lived experience that we, we have, um, that I think that, that then they, they don't include a lot of that context or they don't understand the importance of it or they're not able to connect the dots in, a, in the way that I think um, we are. And so, so I was quite, you know, um, like, you know, I was concerned about reporting on this issue in the United States because uh, I'm from Canada, you know, I, I, I'm from Saskatchewan, um, but I've spent a lot of time reporting in Canada. So I feel like maybe a little bit more comfortable and familiar with the issues um, in, in our communities. Cause, and, and so when I, when I came to the US, I, I was really aware of, 
of how I know there are lots of similarities, but but there are, are clearly a lot of differences. And and um, you know, I, I wanted to be sensitive to that. And I and and I think that you know, at the beginning, I, I feel like I approach those kinds of things with very little expectations. You know, I I'm obviously so like as I mentioned, because so much of this work is really dependent on the families who, you know who are, are the people who um, become the advocates and, and, and really help share the story of their loved one who's missing or murdered. Um, and that's a really difficult thing, you know, and, I, and I've, I've now had the experience of, of reporting on this issue for a number of years and, and get and speaking with a lot of different families. And I think that, you know, every family is, is in a different different place and and it really is dependent on so many things um how they they feel about uh you know speaking with media or 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 talking to to a reporter even if I'm an indigenous reporter you know I, I think I think that makes I, I imagine that makes it easier like I because I, I think that it informs my approach um you know I I definitely am not like I try to be really um sensitive to to the trauma that I know that they are experiencing. And as somebody who's been impacted by trauma in my own life, I think um, I, I really try to approach families with a lot of care and empathy um, and have, like I said, very, very, you know, I, I don't I don't have a ton of expectations for them or 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 or, or I don't apply a lot of pressure. You know, I, I really feel like I'm like, if this is something that you feel that you want to do or is is worthwhile for you then then great um and so with Jermaine's family you know I didn't even know if I was going to get to meet her grandmother really when I when I went there and and um and I and I I like you know that um you know I, I think I spent three weeks in Montana on that first trip and that was very much like um you know getting to to spend you know, I, I had a, a number of visits in those three weeks with with Jermaine's family and chances to talk to them. Um, but but then, like I said, that was just the beginning. Like, you know, we kept I think it was there in June and then the podcast uh, didn't come out until March. Um, and so there were so many conversations um, in between that and 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 still like, you know, I've I've been in touch with some of Jermaine's family this week, even, you know, so we definitely do keep in touch. Um, but, but yeah, there, these are, you know, this is, this is, um, I, you know, I think this for me is more than a job. It, you know, I feel like this is, this is, um, this is, I feel like a responsibility to help tell these stories in, in a way that is respectful. Um, and but and for families who are going through it, you know, it's obviously this is their real life, and and I, you know, this is um, I, I try to be as sensitive as I can be, but it it, it really um, I know it's really difficult for for them, and then for for other podcasts, like I'm I'm definitely still in touch with you know um, Johnny and and Crystal from the Finding Cleo podcast, and and. Um, but but as you know, as those you know, we're not in touch as often as we were, obviously, when when it was happening. But yeah, I, I definitely try to maintain relationships as much as I can.
I was wondering about that if you have been in touch with um, the brother that was living in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, I thought his story from Finding Cleo was really, it, it like when we heard that there are two Yakma boys there, me and my sisters were like, what the, what in the heck, you know? <laughs> like, because yeah. um, I know that we're alive, but that was a censored version of our reactions. But I just um, was really curious because it sounded like at the beginning, you know, of the relationship, he was a little apprehensive to um, engage with you. And um, I was just even really taken aback by, um, you know, his um, the way that he thought about assimilation and, and becoming fully assimilated, that really struck me in a different way. And I just, you know, was trying to imagine what my response would be in that situation and talking to somebody. And I don't know if I would have been heartbroken, you know, and trying to convince them otherwise, or if it would have been, um, you know, a different type of reaction. And so um, I imagine in your situation, you have to learn how to be the one that listens, but also the one that doesn't pass judgment with, you know, your body language or your, you know, your face or, anything or even tones and so I feel like that just gets really tricky at times you know because you you'd never know what's going to trigger you in that process either mm -hmm. but, um, yeah Johnny I mean I, I feel like um, so uh, yeah like with with Johnny for, like for sure I think that um, one thing that I feel like I've realized in in my reporting is is that um, even with things like big things like this that happen, like uh, I, I think I would imagine that like oh they must have you know as a as a family talked about this a lot and hashed out all of these things and then when you when when you know I I come in as like this independent person and I ask these questions and and I and with Johnny you know especially about you know his past and his experience you know I think that he shared like sometimes that was the first time that he would have talked about that you know and and that that is is such a um I think it can I I I was really sensitive to it and, and I imagine that that would be really hard and and I remember when we were talking about that podcast in particular and like and and what kinds of um you know promotion for the podcast we should do and how we should engage with people on social media and there was an idea at the time that we should create this Facebook group so that people can come and talk about the podcast and and that people like to follow along you know, episode by episode. And I was really concerned about that because I felt like this, that, that was treating it too much like a story, like, a, like that, that it was like, you know, people consuming something and, and then talking about their theories in this, in this Facebook group. And that I thought maybe, you know, for, for Johnny and, and Crystal, um, Cleo's sister, Crystal Smegan, uh, who's called Christine in the podcast, but she's since reclaimed her, um, her birth name and, and goes by Crystal. I remember for the, thinking for them that could be a really difficult thing to to like go on Facebook and see people talking about your life. Um, and and I was trying to be really 
sensitive to that. And so we decided not to do that. But then I remember when it came out, like, I think, like, seeing them both really engage with people and actually, like, you know, they were so active on Facebook and so active on Twitter and, and connecting with people and, and, um, and they still are like, Johnny sent me something the other day where he, he's been asked to speak at a school, um, you know, to talk about the podcast and to talk about his family story and like, and I'm just, it's a, like, I'm just in awe that they, they are so able to do that, like, you know, and be so engaged and, and um, be, be okay with like, you know, wanting to keep talking about it and, 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 and be as open as, as they have been. It's, it's kind of, it's amazing. And I'm, I'm so like glad to have been able to be there and have those conversations but also just you know it's so great to to watch um you know i'm 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 not involved in that anymore but like they they're still doing it which is so great i um yeah finding cleo is also another uh podcast that you can uh tune into I do want to uh, say hello to those of uh, our audience that are tuning in live. We have almost a dozen people, so hello to you. Please leave uh, your comments or questions in the chat and our uh, producer will uh, make sure to let us know. And up on the screen, we have Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo with different episodes. And I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Patsy for her uh, question. Uh, yes, Connie, you've answered some of this, but I was wanting to hear from you about some key principles that you have, um, that you think is important for non-native reporters to, to consider and employ in their reporting about native missing and murdered indigenous peoples. Um, yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I, I, it's, um, there, there are, are actually so many, I feel like, um, great resources out there for, for non-Indigenous people who are interested in, in reporting in Indigenous communities. The one I always mention is, um, is a guide called Reporting in Indigenous Communities, and you can find it at riic.ca. Um, it's not specific to MMIW necessarily, or MMIP, but um, but I think it's it's meant to be kind of a guide for non-Indigenous journalists who are interested in in telling stories from our communities, and, and I mean I, I think that that you know I, I, an understanding and a recognition of 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 how these stories have been portrayed in the media and how harmful that has been. You know I, I think that that. There are lots of reasons why I think our stories were so underrepresented in media, but then often even misrepresented. Um, and 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 I think that you know journalists really need to take a hard look in the mirror and see a, a, um, you know really clearly um, the impacts of that. You know I think that there are so many stereotypes that exist about Indigenous people that are sometimes reinforced by those kinds of stories, and and I and. I think that people need to be aware of that. I, the other thing I think is is that, you know, I it's it's so important I think in reporting on any violence, but specifically within Indigenous communities, to understand the the 
impacts of trauma and an understanding of how, um, you know, just the role of trauma in Indigenous communities. You know, for, for every story that I've reported on, I think, like, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that whatever it is, I'm there to talk about, you know, if it's the loss of a loved one or someone's disappearance, that um, it's not the only trauma that that, that person has gone through, that, that it's interwoven in our lives. Um, and it, it also, you know, didn't just it didn't just happen that this is this is that this is actually connected back to a bigger part of our shared history that a lot of us don't understand and it's connected back to um you know the child welfare policies that led to things like the 60 scoop it's connected back to uh residential schools which was you know a uh you know in canada was was something that that children were sent to residential schools um for for generations you know they were in operation for uh over 100 years in, in canada um and and we need to understand like how you know even though we see these black and white images of, of residential schools um the reality is they're they're not that oh the last school closed when i was still in high school um, my my father's went to a residential school. All of his, you know, his his fifteen or fourteen siblings were all went to residential schools. My my, you know, both of his parents went. My grandparents went, and and these are things that are con continuing to impact our communities. And I think that we journalists need to understand that history and 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 try to learn about it and try to learn about. Um, the way that our stories have been portrayed in media and how the impacts that's had on, like, not just us, but our relate, like our relationship with media and, and our relationship, like, you know, whether or not we're, people are, are interested in talking or will trust media. Like, I feel like th those are things that we really need to be aware of. Um, and I think that Another thing is is trying to have an understanding of the diversity that exists in our communities. That there is not one single indigenous experience across North America. That there's there's so many um, diverse nations. You know, in Canada, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, in the United States, it's equally you know diverse. And that um, that we really need to try to to learn as much as, as we can about the individual communities that we're going into. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's, I don't think that's rocket science for journalists, you know, there's, you know, we're often put in those situations where we have to, um, you know, and we're in a really great position to, to do, to, to do that work and to ask questions. And if you don't know, it's like, it's one of the things I love about my job is that, I don't know something and I get to ask people who do know and and I get to ask them questions and I get to hear their stories and and I get to learn and and so I think that that absolutely we have a responsibility as journalists to do that work um and to be aware of those things before taking on these really incredibly sensitive stories and I think the other thing is like not to feel entitled like people people do not have to share and they should not feel compelled to share and and um, we need to like be examining kind of the power structures that exist in in journalism and, and being aware of of that when we're, we're especially when you're reporting on 
communities that have been underrepresented or, or marginalized, I think. I really appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, about the where you see non-native uh, reporting as well. I think all of these that you share with us is important in terms of highlighting, um, you know, what non-native journalists need to take into consideration. And I would agree with you. I'm curious, what is the name of that guide again? It's, it's called Re Reporting in Indigenous Communities. Um, and it's at riic.ca. And it was created by um, my, my former colleague and, and friend, Duncan McHugh. Um, and he's, he's a, an incredible Indigenous journalist here in Canada. Um, the other thing I, I feel like I, is a really big point, and I should say, is that I think that what Indigenous journalists, non-Indigenous journalists need to do is to support Indigenous journalists to tell our own stories, that we are the ones who should be helping to, to share stories from our communities, that we are in the best position because of our lived experiences as Indigenous people to connect those dots in a meaningful way and to understand, and that, that we are the ones who are also underrepresented in media. So they need to be taking a look around in their newsrooms and thinking about what am I doing to help support Indigenous journalists to take on these stories? What am I doing to make sure that that I'm creating, helping to create a safe space for Indigenous people in, in these newsrooms where we've we've been so underrepresented, and and also you know once we get there, there's a huge problem in terms of of keeping us there and supporting us and and retaining it. There are so many talented Indigenous Indigenous journalists who unfortunately have left journalism uh, because of of you know it's it's not enough to just uh, you know have people in those spaces, we need to make sure that we're ensuring their safe spaces for us and that that we are uh, supported in, in doing this important work. I just have one final question. So how do you think, um, you know, the, the journalism community has responded to Native reporters? I mean, do you get asked to talk about that uh, with non-Native audiences? I would think that's something in your role uh, particularly at the national, international level, uh, asked to speak about some of these issues to non-native reporters. Yeah, I, I, I think it's um, it's such a complex thing. Like, yeah, absolutely, and and I want to do my part to try to to try to raise awareness about some of those issues. And I know that there are a lot of really, really um, like well-intentioned and and uh, people who are invested in helping make those changes and they you know they want to do the work to to understand everything that they don't know and to try to create safe spaces um so i i try to engage in those conversations as much as i can i think it's shifted a lot like you know i i, I often tell this story um but when i was an intern my very first job in a mainstream newsroom i was um you know and just I think I had a job there for four months. So I was an intern and my job was chase producing uh, for a national morning show. And so I was finding guests and and then, you know, arranging for them to come on the show to talk about whatever topic uh, was in the news that day. And when I was an intern, one of the there was a fisheries dispute happening on the east coast of Canada where uh, indigenous fishermen um, were fishing and 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 there there were conflicts with non-native fishermen who who and that's still ongoing in, in some ways. But when I was when I was an intern, 
I had booked a local chief uh, to come on the, the show to talk about the latest development. And I, my senior producer at the time was like, did you tell him what time it was? Cause it was a morning show and it was really early in the morning and where to go. And I said, yes, yes. And it, and this was on a Friday and he was due to come on the show on the Monday. And she said, because you know, those Indians, they'll go out drinking all weekend and they won't show up on a Monday morning. And I was, I looked around, I remember looking around to see if anyone else heard her say that. And everyone else was, you know, busy, you know, on their phones or at their desks and no one paid any attention. But, but I think that that was, that sent a really clear signal to me about the kind of space that I was in and who, like, you know, I was an intern and she was a senior producer and I didn't feel like I could say anything. And I, I didn't say anything. Um, and, and I didn't like, I have, I have had other experiences some, similar to that where I've encountered racism at work um since then but i i think that that a lot has changed since then i i feel like there is a, a, an awareness and an understanding and and i think that we 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 still need to do more like there still needs to be um so much more done and i think that that you know for me it's it's also a question about like who are we doing this work for and that's why i think what you are what you are all doing is so amazing because it's it you know it feels like you you're you're all indigenous led like you have an all indigenous team that you're working with and you're telling stories for your community and i've always been in mainstream spaces where you know for a long time i worked at the cbc which is a public broadcaster in canada and so our mandate was to you know to serve canadians which of course include indigenous people in canada but are not exclusive to it and even the reporting that we were doing it felt like you know it's it's educating non-Indigenous people about us. And so it feels like it's kind of for them. And so I've, I've been thinking about like the reporting that we're doing, like how can, like, how can it be for us as well as, as you know, I think it's important. I think it's, it's an important role for, that journalists have to help educate and inform. But I also have been thinking about, you know, how to, how it's, you know, I want to be there for as a support and help make change, um, but also I want to be doing this for us, and I want I want this um, to have positive impacts in in our communities. And thinking about ways to do that is really important too. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your experiences. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And speaking about teams, I want to turn it to Robin just to go back in, on a policy that you had mentioned in Canada. And I'm turning this to Robin specifically because uh, her mother and her has listened to uh, Finding Cleo. You're totally right on point. I was just going to tell you, uh, Connie, that the Finding Cleo story was really touching to me and my mother. I had her listen to it with me. Um, and so it was for many reasons. And Lucy had brought up one of the first reasons why I was like, hey mom, we should listen to this because uh, you talked about um, Cleo's brother uh, being on a farm essentially uh, where people were just like adopting children to work essentially for free, you know, have free labor. Mm -hmm. And um, with whatever other benefits came with that, but also the fact that he had seen Yakimas there, two Yakima boys, and they talked about them running away or about, you know, and of course, the first thing going through your mind, well, which family was that, you know, which, 
which one was it? Because, you know, we tend to know the family. So, like, and so my mom was always like, oh, I wonder if it was this family or this family who had kids, you know, and, or, or if she was trying to remember if she'd heard any stories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so already it had just like got into our consciousness about like how, you know, we all had interacted in, in these like weird spaces that, you know, unfortunately is where we had to interact. Also, one of the things that had come up was the 60 scoop. So that's something that I had never really heard of. Um, we had some similar things, of course, that came on here within the United States. Uh, and before I get into asking about what the 60 scoop was, um, thank you for talking about uh, journalism and things like that. It's hard for me personally, I don't know about the rest of my team to think of myself as a journalist or anything like that. I just think of myself as a storyteller and I'm not even really great at selling stories, but I like stories. And for us, I always feel that we're constantly changing how we approach um, getting the podcast out there because we, we, we were cognizant of that not everybody's going to be native who listens, but they weren't going to be our primary audience. But as native and indigenous people, you're going to be an educator no matter what. If you go into any space that mm-hmm. is uh, non-indigenous or non-native, you're just you know, and if the, the subject comes up like, hey, they're native and they, you just are looked at always as some kind of educator and it always goes back to history like 100% of the time. <laughs> and so it's like, we're always used to explaining. So we identified that our audiences would always be both native and non-native, but we also wanted our native people to, to be involved, to not be afraid to share their stories. So we're always changing our approach to how we're gonna reach them. But also we were cognizant that there were other like uh, podcasts out there who were run by Native and Indigenous people. And I felt like we kind of made a consensus that they're not our competition. You know, we're not competing mm-hmm. with all these other uh, podcasts, but we want to do is elevate their voices as well, because no matter if we tell the story or they tell the story, it's going to be an important story that needs to be told. We need to be able to support them through that process. Um, so again, they're not a competition. And uh, coming a little bit out of, again, when you were, t- I was listening to Finding Cleo with my mother, uh, one of the things that you had said in there was about the differences and how weight is carried when you identify yourself as a journalist in the United States. And I was thinking about that and I heard some other, um, everybody knows like I'm a Ronan Farrell fan. So, you know, he had talked mm-hmm. about it being a, a constitutionally protected profession at least in the United States, you know, and I was quickly looking at it. I see that there were some amendments and things like that going on in Canada, where it's like uh, similar to like freedom of press and all that other stuff. And then, uh, you know, we were talking about like, well, when you came to the United States and you saw these uh, disconnects in terms of law enforcement, and I'd actually just listened to like a few history podcasts and some things like that about just the history of, of law enforcement within the United States. And it's like, was meant to be broken up. That was the whole point is so that things wouldn't, go together because uh, the United States, either the people or the government were afraid of tyranny. So this development came out of fear, you know, and that was something that was interesting that I, had, I was like learning over the week was like, wow. So a lot of these things, the reason that they're so disconnected is because of uh, the government does have fear of things, you know, and that's something that we could see, like they fear the people essentially. And of course, a lot of the things that happened within the United States in terms of treaties and all that other stuff, Sure, it was a lot about colonialism and doing that, but it was also about fear 
of the potential of what we could be because of the legitimacy of our, our being here in time immemorial, you know what I mean? Just being always mm -hmm. present here. Um, but back to that, uh, finding Cleo was that, you know, the 60s scoop came on. Uh, my mother had talked about her own family being under the influence either of a church or boarding school encouraging her mother to give up children, you know, for the same mm. reasons that Cleo mothers had, which is like, yeah. look, you're overwhelmed, you know, you have this, these children, some aren't listening, some are doing bad in school, you know, let us take some or let us take all or, you know, and we'll send them out to families and they'll, they'll come back on the holidays or things like that when you know, we don't know the extent which seems to be like the, the case of Cleo's mother, which is like, you, you weren't told the extent of what it is you're actually signing or what it is you're actually agreeing to because that was the whole point because it's just like and again yeah. it all feeds back into the colonialist project of uh either canada or the united states which is just like just eliminate the native and eliminate the indigenous people because then nobody has claim to this land and it's all open but if you could uh tell us about what the 60s scoop was mm. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the 60s scoop it was like a period in Canada that started in the 1960s, but it certainly it went on, you know, for 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 at least until the, the 1980s. Um, and, and some people, I think, you know, think that a lot of the things that happened in the 60s were still being carried on today in terms of, of um, taking Indigenous kids from our families. But but the but yeah, it was when a large number of Indigenous kids were taken away from their families and communities and placed in child welfare uh, in Canada. And and a lot of them ended up adopted in, into white families and, and non-Indigenous families and scattered across Canada, North America, and even, even the world. You know, there are some stories of Indigenous kids ending up in New Zealand and, and other places like that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the Finding Cleo podcast is about one family's experience uh, through the 60s scoop. So, um, it, and it started when uh, Crystal uh, Semaganis reached out to me to ask if I would be able to help find her sister Cleo. She's, and she explained the story to me that she and all of her siblings, so six children in total, um, you know, children of, of their mother, Lillian Semaganis, were taken uh, by child welfare and adopt separated and adopted into white families and and scattered um, across North America uh, and they had all reconnected as adults because this happened in the 1970s um, but they were still looking for one sibling they were still looking for Cleo and so our podcast was was kind of documenting our journey to help them find their sister um, but it, in a lot of ways I would say like uh, uh, you know another like really important journey that we went on is really trying to understand um the the truth about what happened to them as children as well and to really help them share their stories about you know being apprehended and you know what their experiences were in the child welfare system and how that trauma that they all experienced um through that has impacted their whole lives and i think that the, the you know what we're trying to do with the podcast is is you know by focusing on you know cleo and crystal and johnny and, and their family to really help people understand the impacts of the thousands of indigenous families who went through the same thing and and it's devastating like it's so it's such a devastating story um to 
to learn about, you know, and, and it was such a, um, you know, so, I'm so grateful to, you know, Crystal and Johnny for, for asking us to, to help and then trusting us to help tell their story. Um, and, and for being, and just being so open and sharing, sharing it with not just us, but with everybody. Um, because I feel like they reached a lot of people through the telling of their story and they were, and, and I think that they, you know, they really created space for empathy and, you know, for their experiences in a way that, that I think a lot of our stories are, are not given that space, for, you know, that people, people, you know, it, it's, it's, it is work to try to have empathy sometimes. And so it was also, you know, it's a, it's an investigative podcast. So the investigation is finding Cleo, but the investigation is also telling the truth about our history and how, you know, what government policies, where, where's the accountability? Like, that's something that I'm, I'm really committed to and focused uh, on in, in our reporting is like, you know, who, who are the people behind these decisions? And, and so we were able to like, you know, visit the archives of Saskatchewan, which maybe doesn't sound that exciting, but it was actually a really exciting few days of like going through these documents and and reading the memos from the child welfare workers um, and, and the way that they talked about the children that they were apprehending and learning about this program that was called the AIM program, which stood for Adopt Indian and Métis, which was a program that was designed specifically to adopt Indian and Métis children. Um, and, you know, they had advertisements in, in newspapers and they had commercials with in, Indigenous kids being, uh, you know, advertised for for adoption. And and we felt like, you know, Lillian, um, Cleo's mom, you know, saw her kids in the newspaper uh, and a picture of them, you know, um, being advertised for adoption. And, and just, you know, I think that 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 was part of what, what we did with with the finding cleo podcast um and and i think like i, I mean I'm curious actually robin like what that experience was like for you and your mom listening to that together uh because you know as a um i found it difficult to report on you know and and to help tell that story um and i actually like I, I i remember telling my family like don't no pressure to listen to it like don't feel like you have to listen because it's such a hard story in some some ways and not that that it's like a hard story it's a hard truth it's like it's a reality that so many families have experience with and and it's a reality that so many families um you know if it if if you if you didn't happen to you, similar things may have. And I think that I was worried it would be triggering for a lot of people. And so I remember saying to my family, don't feel like you have any pressure and saying that we don't need to be educated about this history because we've lived it and we've experienced it. And, and, and I think I was so, I was really worried about, um, you know, the impacts of, of being reminded of that trauma. And I think one of the things that I've, that 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 podcast actually helped me realize was also the healing power of of storytelling and story and like and seeing like johnny like we we're just talking about him like i you know i i he the the day that we went to interview him i remember that that um evening he posted this photo of um himself and and talked about like how I can't remember the exact words, but how light, much lighter he felt sharing some of that 
story. And, and he's, he said, consistently says things about that. And, and it really, it helped me show, I think that, that, you know, that it can be a healing thing to share stories, but, um, but I know it's sometimes hard. And so I'm cu curious about what your mom and what your experience was listening to that together. I was worried a bit about her being triggered. She did have like a very similar um, background in her story to kind of like what Cleo and her family and her siblings had went through, you know, dealing with family members uh, uh, being alcoholic or being gone for long periods of time, as well as she was uh, raised by her grandmother, much like how Cleo and her siblings were. And she remembers very similar times. And so at times after listening, it was a bit hard for her. But um, I think I, I was, I mean, just as my own assessment of my own mother, um, I felt she was okay to and ready to listen to it. But if she had been maybe in a different part of her life, maybe not. Mm -hmm. So this was a good time for her to kind of like reflect into, to, she really opened up and shared a lot of those experiences she had as a child. Um, mm. as well as her siblings and just kind of like the separations that had happened there um, and just how uh, she's grateful in the end because her and her siblings are very close so um, a lot of them are they're still very close and she's always like she was actually very thankful that you know these this a similar story could have happened to her and her siblings but it didn't you know it came to the resilience of um even herself identifying that she fought for her siblings and their rights and at certain times in their life. And so it was, it was kind of empowering for her to listen to as well as, but of course, um, I think it really did kind of uh, bring up some triggers for her, but I felt she was strong, very strong enough to, to listen to it. And uh, it was a, we listened to it in the car. So like if she had to do any kind of like, business or something like she likes to go to like Rite Aid or something or just buy her monthly supply of whatever she likes to get so um because you know obviously we're still in the middle of COVID and so yeah. we spend a lot of times uh together alone in the car and things like because we want to you know keep the the interaction with people low and so mm -hmm. most of the times I'd have my daughter or anybody else but I think you know, not that COVID was a good thing, but it, it allowed my mother and I to have that space just in the car, just to travel and listen to the story. Um, I think the last episodes she really um, got into really well uh, because, it, you know, it was very done, very like, like poetically or is really like intriguing and in how um, it was represented, like having the, the ambient sounds and the, the music of the time. Um, I think there was like uh, a Bruce Springsteen song being played and stuff like that. You know, she loves Bruce Springsteen and, you know, she was a, she started her family back in the seventies. So she remembers uh, where she was and all this stuff. So it was really, um, I'm actually really grateful. Thank you, Connie, for doing that story. It was really great. And it, it gave us a great time to be with each other. It was a little hard, but I appreciated that time with her. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, but what, like, just again, with finding Cleo, like, I, I think, um, it was a, it was a, uh, obviously like a, a hard reality to document and to learn about for sure. And to, um, you know, as, as bravely as, as they share their stories, Johnny and Crystal and April and Mark, you know, it was like, those are really, they, they went through so many things, but what I loved about, um, reporting on that story was also 
you know, the, the reunion that, that, that they had and the way that they had come together. And there was so much beauty and, and hope and, and love in that. And I, you know, we felt like it was so important to also show that and, and to really, and, and, and now actually there's a film called uh, birth of a family that was done by um, uh it was done by Tasha Hubbard, who's an incredible uh, First Nations filmmaker from Saskatchewan, uh, but also who who was was part of the Sixty Scoop. She, you know, um, and it was about another family that was also um, taken during the Sixty Scoop, and and they were coming together. And it's a it's a and it's an amazing film. I if you I would encourage everyone to watch it. It's but it but it, I love that film because. It is so focused on um, you know, this family coming together, and and there it was just such a beautiful, beautiful film. It was Betty Ann Adam, who's a a, a journalist in Saskatchewan, and her family uh, allowing Tasha to document their reunion, um, and and I think that that's also. You, you know, so much of my work as an investigative journalist is focused on, you know, sharing some of the difficult truths and trying to get accountability around, you know, uh, missing and murdered or the 60 scoop or, or other things. Um, and, but I think, you know, it's also so amazing to see all of the other, like the diversity of our experiences, not just the diversity of our nations, like that, that there is so much love and laughter and strength. And I mean, mo like laughter, especially in our communities and that that is that's something that we need to share as well in our stories. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing forward the history. As you know, in our introduction, we talk about the historical connections to missing and murdered indigenous women you know, it definitely connects to War Cry. Um, and my interpretation of War Cry is this balance of strength and vulnerability. You know, I published a case study um, about our first reported case of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls at Yakima, which was in 1855. And the United States response was a three-year war. You know, why is that the federal government's response to uh, an act of violence? You know, and this is a question I've asked the FBI in the White House in their listening sessions. Um, and we, in reporting this and researching this and looking at these different historical connections, both in Canada and in uh, the United States, we see patterns. Um, we see how historical policies and acts of violence are connected to present day MMIW. And we definitely see that. Uh, in your reporting, Connie. Um, and I want to take a moment and let you put on your award-winning, internationally known journalist hat and just, you know, turn it over to you and ask, you know, much like you did just to Robin, do you have a question for me and the others? Well, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm curious about, like, what you guys, like, this is, like, I find this difficult work sometimes, and I'm, I'm curious about how you all manage that, like, in terms of sometimes, you know, it's important to tell difficult stories, but it's also can be, can be hard to do this kind of work. So how, how do you guys, you know, manage that sometimes difficult task of, of, of talking with these stories and being immersed in, in this work, um, and also taking care of yourselves and, and your, your mental health? Um, I can start since I knew I was going to ask you to ask me a question, then we'll go uh, 
Lucy, Patsy, and Robin, if that's okay with the team. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I guess I'll focus on today. You know, when I was had first learned about uh, Jermaine's case, it was from this young boy that was asking me to pay attention. And, you know, when I read the article date of that one, um, which was the same uh, day of the year that your last uh, podcast episode came out. And it just screamed to me. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, this story wants to be told, focus on Jermaine. I mean, you have such a wide breadth of work that I just kept thinking, what approach and range can I bring forward? And I thought I'm going to bring forward what this young man who has Yakima lineage asked me to bring forward. You know, for years later, he took that time for his basketball game. And I think for me, and it's important to have a community approach to this. It's important to listen to our youth having three children. Uh, they have a lot of insight <laughs> and some of it, <laughs> you know, it's your responsibility to guide, but in our teaching and in our Yakima way, um, our, our youth are our teachers, you know, mm -hmm. the, the name that they share with the grandmother and grandchild is interchangeable, but it's only between those, that set of grandparents, um, you know, from Allah, for example. So, you know, as a young child, I grew up seeing and hearing this, this matriarch of our family, you know, being referred to this food gatherer, looking to her for answers, for advice. And she would then call me the same term. And the issue that I have, and I think a lot of people have with these policies, this uh, forced assimilation, violent assimilation policies, 60s scoop, uh, forced residential schools and boarding schools, is that it tried to remove and destroy that part of our culture in which our youth are our teachers. Um, so for me, I, you know, I really took a long moment and thought about you know, what that young man was trying to bring forward and how I could, you know, help, you know, ripple that out into community and, you know, using what platform we have to bring that forward. And, um, it, you know, so in considering my approach, I consider what the community has asked of me and how I'm aligning my actions to that. And I feel better about it. It is a triggering thing. It is hard to hear the court case and they're sitting there saying there's this three years later after they found the guns, then they're going to charge him. And you have all these things come up and you're just like, what, why? And then I had a question for the federal government and there's Connie Walker on the phone <laughs> talking. Um, it helps streamline all that when you reconnect with what the community is asking. And, you know, for me, that was definitely of that young child that was trying to bring awareness for her case. Thank Listen. you. Can you repeat the first part of the question? Because I was so caught up in what Emily was sharing. So <laughs> I know the second part is about mental health and self-care. So what was the first part again? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just about, you know, the motivation to do this work and, and then how you how you manage it and how you take take care of yourself. Um, so for myself, the motivation to do this work, um, it, it's there's a my youngest is a uh, transgender. And so, um, you know, when they were, because they go by the pronouns of they, them, theirs. So um, when they were 15, they couldn't express that to us. And so they actually had attempted suicide. 
And then, um, you know, after we worked through some of that, then they, they came out and shared, you know, like, you know, identify as, as non-gender conforming. And so as somebody who was in social work, um, I had a huge learning curve for myself and to try to pick up like, okay, you know, these are the things, this is what's gonna happen in our family that's gonna be different. And really it took a huge turn when I started to learn about the statistics about LGBTQ, especially being, um, you know, people of color, knowing that they're more likely at risk to be assaulted or, you know, violently killed, especially in the United States. Um, and then I couldn't just bear the thought of having that happen to my child because their life expectancy doesn't really go past 30, you know, here in the United States if they're um, trans feminine. And um, being a true crime podcast listener for a long time, um, I really appreciated the cases and, and the individuality focus, you know, of, in, of the people and the families. But then I started to think, well, why don't we have anything like that for us? You know, um, and then starting to hear yours. And what I appreciated about yours so much is that it gave me this, this uh, ability to step back and really look at things from a systems view to be able to, to say, oh, okay, like this wasn't necessarily happening in isolation or this wasn't solely happening to us. You know, it was a whole thing um, that was impacting our community and our state and, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, so when I think about that um, and how you were talking about earlier, how to make it yours, I feel like that's how we are making it ours is just using our own voice to be able to do that. Um, so for myself in, in all this, just aside from, you know, my child and, and the concerns about them um, being able to, you know, be successful in this lifetime. We have a high number of missing and murdered Indigenous people here on our reservation. Um, we don't know what the numbers are for our males or for our, our children. And um, that within itself is concerning. Uh, you know, the silence that has been going on for many years is, is concerning. And so I feel like, you know, with my amazing co-hosts, you know, we have this platform to be able to really elevate some of those voices um, that have, you know, been silenced for so long. Um, as for self-care, this is what I typically like to ask, you know, our guests, but, um, and I realize sometimes I'm really poor at it. And um, it is heavy. There's, there's probably like, it's so easy, I feel like, for myself to get lost in that and, and really just, you know, uh, throw myself pity parties sometimes. And so uh, sometimes I have to do that, you know, uh, just have some downtime for myself and really uh, kind of just mentally check out for a little bit or do things um, with my kids. You know, like last night we ended up watching an anime together. So it's just those small things, those small efforts that, um, you know, help me get out of my head and away from, you know, the, the heaviness of this subject. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll just be uh, very brief, Connie. I want to say thank you again for um, sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate it. So I'm much older than the young ladies that are here. And so um, I bring uh, to this conversation um, 
personal experience with violence and trauma from you know childhood to where I am today. I live here um, in White Swan on the Acma Reservation and we're more rural, isolated and a remote community on the reservation. And so because of that, um, you know, you were not in a city where you have access to law enforcement and law enforcement is pretty absent here in our community as well. So that is an, an issue. So I think just the experience of violence and trauma, uh, myself personally and within family and the fact that, you know, over the years I've had not only my sister that's been missing, but also uh, family members, women who've been murdered uh, as well. Uh, I'm so sorry them here on the reservation and I think what you know what I carry is not only the younger people's trauma and experience but also being raised by grandparents and being around a lot of elders when I was very young and so knowing their stories that they shared with me and some more recent elder stories about their own personal experiences that when they got older, they began sharing those stories. And so I, I, I think I'm at that level, but I've started sharing my stories uh, earlier uh, just because I thought there needed to be voice out there. And so that's what I did. I just began writing and I love to write. And so I just thought uh, in terms of the story for my sister, I was going to write about, you know, the positive attributes and character about who she was. And by doing that and putting it on paper, I was able to share it with my sisters. And so they, um, you know, one of the sisters was able to pick that up. And so now when she shares, she also shares that, but they can just a guide to share and most of my work is with the federal government, with members of Congress, and also with state legislature. But my background is in education. And so I've witnessed firsthand what happens in public education as well with our children and the dehumanization of our children, much like how I grew up as a young girl on the reservation and being, being in a military school and being raised by her and then um, myself being in a mission uh, school here in the community of White Swan. And so, you know, I carry in all of this and also recognizing that we have all of these institutions that have really impacted the daily lives of who we are as a people. And, uh, and so much so that you know, I'm just witnessing that my elders who provided testimony to the federal government and to state government in when they were destroying our, our grave sites and all of that as a young child to just witness all of that. There has to be some justice someplace. And I still have that memory and I'm going to continue to call it out, which I have done, which is important to do for us in terms of, you know, our relationship, not only with one another, but our, our relationship with the land and the environment of where we're, where we're at. And so, you know, what, what I do, you know, for self-care is just, just being able to articulate this is a part of that self-care as well. And to be able to write it 
I've been known to write. If someone did something terribly wrong, I'll write it and, and I'll slam it on the table. I've seen this when I was for state government, I had to do this because I was being attacked by an, uh, a, a, an education official at the state level. And what I did was just slammed all these books down on, on the desk and said, that's I'm not going to send this letter back because of the way this letter was sent to me, you know, by a superintendent. And I just left it there for about two weeks. I turned around and send a nice letter back to this individual. <laughs> so it's things like that. You have to be bold to be able to do those kinds of things. And, and that if that's going to help me, then I so so I just want to say thank you for listening to our voices and also sharing your stories. Thank you so much. Yeah, Patsy's being very modest, uh, a part of a the majority of a lot of the things that we do is definitely steered by Patsy. I don't it, like if you live on the reservation here in Yakima, you know that if Patsy asks you to do something, you don't say no. So we always do what Patsy says because <laughs> she's she's been through so much and she knows a lot. Um, but uh, she's so Patsy, you're actually a part of what rejuvenates me sometimes is when I see Patsy like um get riled up about things and she's like down with the man down with the system we're like yes you know <laughs> that's what i love seeing <laughs> but uh, it does get much sometimes um like lucy i i enjoy listening to true crime but there are times i do need to put it away and i think uh moving back to the yakima reservation uh living here with my family and um, my tribe, I've actually really depended on them when I do have harder times. And so that's kind of like what gets me through a lot of it is, is knowing that I have a support system there. Um, you know, there are pros and cons, because I don't know if you believe in astrology, but I don't know, I'm a Sagittarius, and we always just want to like go wander away and go. <laughs> but I, in general, that's my personality too. I just like, I was like, oh, I want to go here now, you know, I want to go live over here. And in, I don't know, move to a different country for a while and then come back and then, you know, but what, um, when I do go places, uh, I do just, I'm just drawn back home for the most part. And a lot of it is because if something is bugging me, I feel I do have that system, like my, my siblings or my friends who I consider siblings and even the war cry team. Sometimes I, you know, there are times I just told them I, it's a bit much right now, I'm sorry. And they've been very supportive and either picking up and things that um, I wasn't able to get to, or, you know, they're just there just to listen. So I feel that that's kind of been the biggest thing that helps me. Uh, the other thing is uh, spending time um, like with my family, spending time um, playing games on my phone. So <laughs> I like to play like Tetris games, listening to podcasts. And so those those times when my daughter falls asleep and I can't sleep. Um, that's how I got through listening to Finding Cleo and searching for Jermaine and all those other ones. And uh, I enjoy learning. So learning through those things is kind of like what really gets me through and learning a lot about history really, I feel like helps me manage a lot of things because it also helps me frame about frame my experience and frame the experience of others. Um, so again, like I said, listening to finding Cleo with my mother, that was actually like, even though it was hard, it actually mm -hmm. like really um, opened a lot of doors and things and stories that I, I had never 
had heard before from her mm -hmm. and, um, and she had learned too so that's I think uh, listening to podcasts and, and just playing my game and being able to really dive into stories is what's really helped me whereas before I think one of the things I wanted to say so you brought up Tasha Hubbard and I'm a big fan and I wanted to say that's like a, as a United States someone who's from the United States an American as I guess we'd be called um there wasn't a lot of representation in terms of just media in general of native people or indigenous people especially in the americas and so i was always like dependent on other um entertainment industries so like that coming out of canada was kind of one of the biggest things so i'd heard of tasha hubbard because i was like trying to find any kind of like representation that was similar to mine and so i was just like oh tasha hubbard so i was really happy you brought that up um i also lean on other um communities uh like uh latino hispanic mexican communities like in terms of cinema cinema as well as asian cinema and things like that of other people who are um, in the united states and uh, around the world that are indigenous and have indigenous type stories so um listening to your your podcast was a part of that definitely and I think that's also why we decided to come together because um, while we do have some other uh, native podcasts, I think there's just still not enough. So there needs to be more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much. I, I really appreciate hearing about, you know, what motivates you guys to do the work that you're doing. And also, um, like a lot of what you all said resonated with me just in terms of, um, you know what what and why i i i want to do this work and and i agree with you patsy that even like talking feels like in and you know sharing also i feel like is, is a really big part of um taking care of yourself and so thank you all for making space for me to share today and and i really appreciate it it's been so great to be here with you Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the War Cry podcast. We do want to give a couple of War Cry, a few War Cries out. Uh, the family of Jermaine Charlo, her grandmother, Vicki Marshall, and Aunt Belinda. The Hustle Your Bustle basketball team, especially um, Triance Matt, the young gentleman who in 2019 asked his team to bring forward Jermaine's name. Uh, we also have a couple of community uh, announcements. We, you know, in delay and process, there is a delay when there's a federal investigation of the return of uh, the individuals that have been murdered. And sometimes that's one, two years. And we have heard from community members that there are going to be their relatives returning home. So we want to give a war cry to Liz Hildebrand she will be in Washington soon to take her son home to California. We also want to give a war cry to Sissy Reyes, uh, Chris, and the family of Rosenda Strong, as they are now able to have our uh, their ceremony for their sister, I believe in Umatilla, where she's enrolled. She's also a Yakima descendant. Um, again, for outros, we are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. I'm Emily Washings, and thank you to co-hosts Robin, Lucy, and Patsy. Thank you again to our guest, uh, Connie Walker. For credits, we have support from Native Women in Action. We are edited and produced by Robin Pibashi. 
logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro, where you can also get the merch and music by Lee. <laughs> yeah, uh, Robin gave a point out uh, to the shirt there. There you go. And music by Lee Sekakwapua. Thank you again.